There is an integrated machine layer that allows you to print in 3D in 3D form, that meaning, control robots of any form with that meaning, interact with visualizations with that meaning, write something that would be print with that meaning. I also think it's necessary. I think natural language, I don't know, I feel like natural language is going to end up being some kind of slang at some point, that it's going to be insufficient for describing or interacting with this moment or the moments that come after this. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. When I was in college, I was diverted from a lifetime obsession with paleontology by a series of animal communication papers I read. Martin Nowak, then at Princeton, later went on to found the Department of Mathematical Biology at Harvard. These papers talked about the emergence of modern language from a mathematical perspective as a catastrophic bifurcation in simpler forms of animal language where one word communicates an entire scenario. And in the complexity of human society, however primitive, we developed so many evolutionarily relevant scenarios for ourselves that it became easier to remember the syntactic rules than to try and remember a new specific word for every new relevant life experience that we were innovating in these social spaces. And something like that is going on now. And I think that the person who exemplifies this more than anyone that I'm aware of is Onyx Ashanti. This guy is impossible to describe, but you can look up his TED Talks. He exists in a state of constant immersion in his own cleverly designed 3D printed biomechanical dance controlled computer musical interface. And really he just challenges the boundary that this show attempts to challenge almost every episode that I argue, I think that times are challenging this boundary between the made and the born between as Daniel Lanois puts it, the flesh and machine. And this is all happening in rapidly, vitally remixed urban spaces also, spaces of extraordinary novelty and constant mulching, recycling, re-territorialization, waves of new art and philosophy and science coming out of maker spaces that are simultaneously gardens and monasteries and garage biopunk facilities and rogue educational training grounds. These places are thriving at the edge of chaos. They're thriving in the noise, much like how in a child's brain, the signal to noise ratio of sense to imagination is lower, just as it is in the elder's brain, in the highly tangled minds of those full of experience. It's in these noisy spaces that the future is born, which is my flowery way of saying this is an exceptionally noisy episode, you guys. 
And if you are the kind of person that struggles with audio quality issues and podcasts, then just stop listening now, please. Rather than writing me a bad review, I don't want it. You don't want it. Let's all move on with it. But if you're daring and you're curious and you, like me, enjoy immersing yourself in the chaotic and noisy spaces at the frothy edge of our embryonic singularity, then, oh my goodness, do I have the most wonderful two-part episode with Onyx Ashanti for you. And actually, in a kind of a cool, mythic, poetic way, the musical robot incidental makerspace background soundtrack to this in some places is highly synchronistic with the conversation, or maybe I'm just kidding myself. And it also stops at the exact moment in the conversation that we arrive at a new platform of clarity and simplexity. So I think in a way, this conversation is a performance of its own cosmology, which is really cool. And I hope that you enjoy it. But first, I just want to give a shout out to Sean Paul Van Anken, one of my friends at the Arcosanti Co-op in Arizona, helping transition this historic, visionary architectural community into something that can stay as fluid as our times. Sean Paul is the latest Patreon supporter, along with 120-something others. And I love and appreciate you all. Thank you so much for helping me and this show remain afloat, keeping this stream of vital conversations erupting out of these podcasts and flowing into the cool waters of your minds and the minds of all those who discover to benefit from them. Check out patreon.com slash Michael Garfield if you would like. I've made sure that the perks on offer there are far above and beyond the ordinary fare. And thanks to everyone who has been reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts. I'm almost the magic number, 100 reviews, at which point I will be awarded new weapons and armor and allowed to continue on to the next stage. And all of you will ascend with me. So, thanks for your help. Okay, folks, enough goofery. And on to a fully new and wonderful form of goofery. Enjoy this conversation, and thanks for listening. Onyx Ashanti, it's great to have you on Future Fossils Podcast. It's great to be on Future Fossils Podcast. That's a that's a mouthful. Future Fossils Podcast. <laughs> yeah. I thought about putting it out on Fridays and you know, I was like, that's just asking for tongue twisting revenge. I thought <laughs> too much, too much. Yeah. Well, dude, I know that not everyone can see you, but I hope that they can determine from the well-selected cover image I'll use for this episode. The they can, they can hold that in your mind. We were just saying I've never had anyone answer Skype for a video call wearing an EEG headset. 
that looks for all the world like it was uh, custom 3D printed by you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, that's what. Oh shit! It has a. Oh, that's how it, that's it. Is that the? That's the mouth. That has a mouth. That has an accelerometer, the breath sensor, and um, LEDs here when it's on, and all that. And so when I don't need it, I can just put it. <laughs> I'm I'm having a a geek moment. So I don't know if you recall, you and I met at Moogfest in 2016, real briefly. Um, which was which was a treat. I was right after I'd given a talk on techno shamanism, and and I was like, "Dude, you are such a perfect guest for this show." So, <laughs> so what are you working on right now? You said you're 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 putting some musical robotics together for a show. No, no, uh, a friend of mine does musical robotics, and he's here visiting, and so he's setting that. That's that's what you'll hear in the background, <laughs> cranking everything up. Cool, man. Yes. It's very fresh. What is hot on the plate right now? I'm in the process of kind of preparing for a, what I'm calling at this point, a winter session of kind of exploring the the zeitgeist of now. You know, it's like there's a thing, a mini, there's a poly thing, a meta thing that's happening. And it's very interesting to interface with it right now because it's a new kind of a thing it's you know we're globally networked we have you know access to technologies and information that are only limited by our ability to comprehend them so i'm very interested in taking this this moon phase you know the winter phase is like my moon phase and taking this moon phase and really kind of going into what is this moment that i'm inhabiting right now this exponential moment, you know, especially watching Bitcoin blow through predictably for some and, you know, so scarily for other people. It's, you know, watching it do what it was supposed to do has been um, very interesting and finding and inter- interacting with ways of exploring that blockchain idea that aren't just about the economics and getting rich quick and holding until I'm a millionaire and then what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that whole part of it is annoying. I, you know, I mean, your, your work is so um, deep and interesting that I, I definitely don't want to devote the whole <laughs> recording to talking about blockchain stuff, but you but, are one of the only people I've heard out there who's really excited about the like long-term freaky biomechanical creative possibilities in this space and like what it means, you know, what it means to have at its core, this like distributed ledger idea, you know, and and like blockchain is not even the only manifestation of that. Um, But this, this idea of a, you know, a disintermediated system, I can see how that really appeals to somebody who spends as much time as you do making your own custom, musical components and electronics and you know it it really the maker part of this you know the idea that we can move beyond just like printing items like objects and shit, yeah yeah and like get into you know making our own financial systems making our own legal systems and that's that's where it it starts getting 
you know, kind of nuts, honestly, like imagining forward into a world where the spirit of garage biohacking applies to things that we've ordinarily taken as the province of like governments and large institutions. That's already, I mean, that's already happened. That's already happened. I mean, most of the innovation isn't coming from these, from these other places. They're coming from people who are um, metabolizing information. I look at it differently. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in language constructs now. And so the language of the blockchain as uh, a distributed ledger and, um, you know, peer-to-peer, blah-de-blah, Internet of Money, all of that, I am very invested in that, and it's interesting. But I, I, look, at it, I look at it also as a kind of participatory genome, that we're, we're designing kind of this digital participatory genome of a life form that, um, that we get to, I mean, this life form is going to spawn other blockchain, choice chain type of entities that we will fit meaning onto. So I think looking at that while not being, of course, the economic aspect is inevitable, but I think it's looking at, you know, I've been kind of fixated on Marshall McLuhan the last couple of weeks. Mm. And one of his quotes that the future of the future is the, is the now. And what it means is that most, or what he explained it to me is that most people, their vision of the future is the past, you know, mm. is an past, a, a model of thing. You know, when you look back and you say, oh, I should have done this this way. So they idealize a future based on this past metaphor. And so they can't even begin to handle the future. You know, because if the future is like a possibility space, it's we co-constructed by our collective choices. And so having this trust structure to build around. Oh, did you pick that up? Oh, who picked up the such and such? Oh, who? what? What, what was that? Oh, uh-huh. What? Uh, uh, uh. You know, see, then it, our collective choices can fall apart uh, because maybe the systems we use to to make those choices collectively get overwhelmed by ideology or inefficiency or bad formatting of, um, of protocols, but having, but the idea of a blockchain, see, that's the thing that's really interesting is that all the people who look rearward, look into the past for their mm. future are look at, Oh, well, we'll just control the blockchain and then we'll no. that <laughs> idea, that idea is now out in the wild. That means that even right now, I think, I'm thinking of the parameterization of my system in terms of um, parameter chains of 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 uh, taking one parameter and feeding it into the next and into the next and into the next to uh, to build complexity that way. Mm. You know, it's something that is born of my interaction with and meditation on the blockchain. I don't even own that much of a Bitcoin. I spend it. I'm not a holder. I'm a, I'm a spender. I like to. <laughs> I have a way that I like to spend with it, but I have had a chance to meditate on it for the last four years of having it be my primary thing. And I can see that if we investigate this genomic aspect of it and kind of push our time horizon out a bit, you know, we're, we're so busy thinking about how quickly it's going to reach 100,000 bucks. We're not thinking about all of the changes that are inevitably about to pop off mm. in a very fast way in the next three to six months, maybe the next 30 to 60 days, 
you know, we're in an exponential time space right now. We're not, it's, this isn't just linear, like, well, in, by 2023, that's, that's, nobody knows what the fuck. <laughs> the only people who know that are people who are collapsing possibility down to probability by doing it. Mm. You see? Yeah, yeah. That's actually one of the one of the, the things that guides the and inspires this show is, you know, I saw this really interesting thought piece on like who owns the future. You know, like the future is this idea and like you said, you know, like typically when we're presented with an idea of the future, at least, you know, over the last few decades in, you know, most of the quote unquote developed world, it's based on like a the imagination of a very small group of people who tend to be the technological haves, you know. And so we're all just sort of getting as like Doug Rushkoff would say, programmed by oh, yeah. this elite. Yeah. You know, and so we're not programming our own ideas of the future. Uh, my friend Violet Luxton, who I shout out to here because she's a student in California who's working on the intersection between like music and, and biology and this idea of like designing new instruments as like, you know, cybernetic augmentations, parts of the body, you know, very much in, yeah. you know, in your, in your wheelhouse, I'd say. And yet she's also very socially aware and aligned along, you know, the issues of the marginalized and repressed. And you get into this thing about, oh, the future, quote unquote, the future. Like, whose future yeah. are we talking about? I think when you, they had you out at Moogfest, were you, you were part of the Afrofuturism track for that, right? No, I was No, you not. weren't? No, I was very surprised by that. Yeah. So, like, like you know. I love bit on that panel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, like, there's this, there's this thought of, like, Eric Davis, one of, another one of my favorite people, had a series of podcast episodes on his show, Expanding Mind, that explored Afrofuturism and, and, you know, the relationship between the, the esoteric and, and jazz and this vision of space that ran completely, like, you know, like the Sun Ra vision that ran completely yeah. parallel to and separate from, this sort of like IBM house of tomorrow kind of shit that everyone just sort of yes, yes, yes. assumes. And you know, there's this, there's a robust tradition of like African and Australian sci-fi. That's like totally weird and different and wonderful. And I don't know, yeah. I'm just pulling out stuff here because I think it's important for all of us to know that we do in fact uh, have some stake in it. And in a weird way, I feel like as we, we start climbing this slope into the vertical that our pasts become almost as malleable as our futures. But think about it. The past and the future all exist as constructs in your mind. Mm. The, the, the past is no more real than the future, except that you've actually lived through your own experience of a thing you call a past. Everything outside of your own experience is just rumor. It's just, you know, and so we're making constructions of these other pasts based on what we were told and what we've experienced. Those are the two things. Either we've let someone convince us of something or we have experienced it. And even then we can let people convince us of our perception of the thing that we're experiencing. So I have a, a, a belief system that I've been designing for the last couple of years that helps me kind of zone in to the now very much more usefully 
I won't go into the whole thing right now because it's not that deep. It's very <laughs> cyclical system. You know, there's no deities, there's no good and bad or any of that stuff. It's all harmonic resonance stuff. But in it, the past, in its most simple terms for me, is a is an experiential database of referenceable information, a an encoding into the memory dimension. There has to be a memory dimension or there would be no species. There would be no speciation of life. So there has to be a memory dimension of some sort. And so the past to me is the kind of like a stop off before it gets encoded into this memory dimension. And that futures are a way of collapsing possibility into probabilities. And so if someone can convince you that the future is going to be some fuck shit, I don't know if I can say fuck shit on your show, but absolutely. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> if it's going to be some fuck shit, then guess what? You're going to be tuning into fuck shit constantly. You see, and then your futures collapse into trajectories of fuck shit. Yeah. You see? So the way that I look at the past now is I take all of the things that I remember and have a kind of cataloging system that make them useful for constructing futures that I find interesting and optimal mm, yeah yeah you see so on that note i've been i've been writing and and talking and thinking about all of this stuff regarding these technologies like blockchain as continuations it's like like you said you know which lens of history which past are you going to sort of select for and which future is that going to spit out in you know the input output of it and for me, I've been looking at it from a perspective of evolutionary catastrophes, you know, like in the sense that something that changes really fast in a way that we retroactively consider very good, like the evolution of flowers was at the time the like hidden seventh mass extinction in the last 500 million years. It's like half as big as the one at the end of the age of dinosaurs. And that was flowers. That was that was like flowering plants and pollinating interspecies relationships blowing up and, and transforming the world. And the thing about that one is that it's uh, if we're using that as a model for the way that this sort of crisis of exponential change comes in and sweeps in and creates something that looks like destruction from one end, it looks like a renaissance from the other end. And it's, you know, it's, it's very easy to imagine something like that going on here. And on that tip, you know, so we were just talking about this last night, what it is, I mean, at the model that I use, I should say, I won't say what it is. <laughs> the model that I use is that of polarity. You know, like nature likes to conserve, but it also loves novelty. So novelty is kind of like peering into chaos and creating form from it. But when form, uh, but finding a way to conserve form so that you can create new novelty. So there's a there's a there's a kind of polarity that happens. Um, that if you look at it from the so when I, when I see these polarities or good and bad or, you know, any of these things, I think about them in an electronic sense. You know, mm. it's modulation of the relationship between positive and negative that gives you computers. So if you take any polarity and run them through that type of modulatory mental process, then you're able to kind of abstract things out of them that um, that are way more interesting especially if they kind of have a mathematical relevance to them. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always kind of taken it as, I think an extension of that model would be something like ideologies within society are like opposing muscle groups. 
and mm-hmm. that you, you, you kind of need the bicep and the tricep in order to move the arm, you know? Mm-hmm. So you need your liberals and your conservatives, something that... Uh, yeah, it's more like programs, you know? It's like, mm. if the mind is a, the mind is a programmable system. That's, that's, you know, that's something that I, that I, I feel ever more strongly over time. It's an, it's an exquisitely programmable system. And ideology is a simplification that allows a mind to latch itself onto it and kind of, uh, oh, I'm running, I'm running Christianity 3.0, or I'm running Make America Great Again beta. You know, it's like these are all, you know, programs that get run on their platform and interact. However, you know, I mean, sometimes these things can run for thousands of years, and sometimes these programs just crash and take your computer with it in that metaphor. Mm-hmm. But these systems, these ideologies are kind of simplistic, you know, thought software in a sense. You need a certain amount of literacy in order to create a partition on your computer and then run two different operating systems. And mm-hmm. there's something about that. I think, you know, there's so many quotable quotes about the the occasion to which we can rise as self-authoring individuals in charge of our own value systems and like being able to hold contradictory ideas in your mind at one time being a evidence of a, you know, a sophisticated person. I was doing a yoga video this morning and I, I, it would be interesting to bring this conversation down into the body as so much of your work is very much that a, a concretization of these very visionary high tech ideas into form fitting functional devices so there's this yoga video i was watching this morning where the teacher said that her teacher said that neck pain sometimes results as this psychosomatic consequence of being unable to take both sides of an issue which i found (laughs) i I thought that was on point because i definitely uh it seems true to my experience that you know like i'm getting stuck in a particular way of thinking and you know, I can move my head one way, but not the other. You know, I can mm-hmm. activate that one program, but, you know, like Derek Zoolander, like I can't turn left. Then that would suggest that, you know, if you tie this, this polarity thing to your physical motion so that, you know, so that your physical motion creates this kind of, I don't know, musical polarity, you know, left, right. That's a polarity. Mm-hmm. So if you have something like I have a like this is an accelerometer that, that's on mine. It, it doesn't have a gyro, so it's more tilt left and right than it is turn left and right. But as a physical manifestation of that metaphor, I do think about that. I mean, I'm 47 years old. It's like if I'm not moving, shit gets stiff. It hasn't gotten stiff because I keep moving. Mm. It is nice to have something that makes me have to move my head in these ways, and I can hear it creak a little when i do that you know it's oh you know so it's like you know while you're having this physical effect on your body i think it also plays with the duality of things that you're holding in your mind as well it's like oh if i can exercise my body and make my neck stop hurting from you know turning it this way and that way to yes you don't take both sides of the issue you kind of look at them as a polarity and then just kind of switch between them and kind of synthesize something in between Mm. That maybe, you know, zings between one aspect and another, depending on how it feels at that moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I, um, Richard Bird wrote this book, uh, Chaos in Life, mm-hmm. years and years ago. And, and it, you know, this one part of it really stuck with me. He's talking about how to resolve a paradox. 
And he says, you got a card, and on each side of the card, it says the statement on the other side of this card is false. So what do you do with that? And he's like, well, what you do is you spin the card. You forget you're holding a card, so there's this extra dimension that you're not considering because you're thinking in two, two dimensions. Mm-hmm. If you add that, that rotational dimension, suddenly you can assign a relative truth value to each side of the card depending on how long it's facing you at any given time, yeah, yeah. how long it's like within the, the horizon of its relevance to you. Yeah. Then you have an oscillating truth value that you can average over time, and suddenly you're operating in this whole extra space, and you're not sitting there banging your head against a wall. So uh, I think there's you know, all these extra, extra dimensions that, are, that have to start kind of coming in. I'm curious to see where you see that kind of principle at play in, like, right now in in the world, in your work, or anywhere really. I don't know. I I, I see that there is a um, okay. So we're we're in 2017, going into 2018. We've got a reality TV show star as the president of the United States, and we've got a global currency that nobody can control that is quickly becoming the most val- one of the most valuable things on earth and so that is our new start point you know that's not an end point that's not the end of the star wars movie where everybody's dancing it's like yay we win it's like that's just the new beginning that changes exponentially a little bit every single day so that means that i feel like we have to start we have to have more art that play with the malleability of exponential uh, of exponential expressions. Mm. We have to we have to internalize that shit. We have to be able to see exponential expressions and recognize them. And like when you were talking about climbing the steep slope of a, of, a, of an exponential curve, well, what if that curve isn't a hill but a wave, and you surf it instead of climbing? Mm-hmm. See, then you're not in control. You know, you're not in control of that wave. You are only observing and interacting with that wave. You have to depend on your own adaptability, your own prediction skills, your own ability to to govern your body surfing this exponential thing. And oops, oh, there's a there's a nuclear something or other going on with Korea. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh wait, there's there's fascists over at the mall. Yeah. Oh, there's you know there's all these there are all these uncertainties, and it's not that they're not going to happen. You know, it was I watched a TED talk a few weeks ago that was very interesting, where he outlined the difference between a finite game and an infinite game. Are you talking about James P. Carse? Because I'm reading that book right now. Finite. I, inf- I was a young guy. Maybe it was. I was I, just reading this before I called you. Yes, you see? So yeah. I said, right there. <laughs> and the thing is, what was interesting is that, you know, uh, a finite game is one that you can win. An infinite game is one that you, that you win by just playing the game. So business, for instance, is an infinite game. You win the game just by pl- being able to keep playing the game, right? Yeah. And so most people think that the situations that they are interacting with are finite when many of them are infinite. So there is no finite resolution to racism. Mm. There is an infinite game. It is a, it will constantly be a thing. There will always be a, a subset of every group that will, if they have a way of imprinting their will on other peoples, they will do so and they will use 
the difference between them and those peoples to justify that they're doing it. That is an infinite game. It, you don't win that game and it's like, okay, well, I got my trophy. I'm going to go home. You know, same thing with finite games. So it's, there's a lot of people who think that if they get the right president or if they get the right representative or if they buy the right car, then it's all going to be all right. That is not the case. It is very, very not going to be all right. It has to be there. There are evolving and exponentially complexifying um, streams of um, possibilities that are collapsed that can collapse into probabilities if you understand that possibility collapses into probability. Otherwise, you are believing what Fox News or some blog or some other thing is saying, which then you imprint that in your mind, and now you think you're playing a finite game. You think that if we just if we just bring manufacturing back to America, that that's going to make it all okay, or some other mythology that is useful for keeping people in place and uh, controllable. You see, yeah. right now, I think that there has to be more expressions of exponentiality and infinite games and infinite games with exponential outcomes. So like, for instance, maybe movies where at the end of the movie, there is a strength, like, I, that's why I liked AI, mm -hmm. you know, the movie AI, because yeah, yeah. It's, you know, we got the little Pinocchio kid. And so he wants to be a real boy and all this shit. And then it's like all, all his whole adventure happens. Then he gets trapped underwater. I hope I'm not giving it away for anybody. If they and haven't then, watched it by now, it's their fault. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, just, just watch it on, you know, whatever. So, um, but then, you know, any other movie that would have been the end of the movie, but then time goes on, hell freezes over, you know, everything. And now they're excavating this kid out of whatever, some like TV aliens or whatever those things were. And they make a little, some weird matrix where they bring his mom back to kind of brush his hair for an hour or two. And it's just like, whoa, what the fuck? What was that? You know, it's like, now that was an exponential jump. But what would have been an even more exponential jump after that is, okay, well, now you have that moment. What do the alien people do with you now? What do you do with them? You know, do you get upgraded? Do you just hang out? Do you get bigger? Do you become a toaster? What happens? And so these trajectories, I think we're still stuck. It might even be our media culture because American media culture likes to wrap things up in a happy ending, the mm -hmm. happy after scenario. And I think that that makes us retarded. You know, uh, it's like it, there should be a thing where the story ends and there is a certain kind of resolution that comes at the end so that you can complete it in a, in a way that's fulfilling. But there should always be some expression that, oh, wait a minute, in the time that this story has traversed, a, an exponential amount of complexity has entered into the story. So even though this is happily ever after for movie's sake, there's a whole bunch of other singularity type shit, you know, so that there's always this feeling like, okay, 
this can be a good moment, but the next thing is going to be exponential and we will have to uh, interact with it on its own terms. Totally. And have good and bad and you know, all of these things, these, these abstractions that we put on things, we'll have to derive new ones because the, the, the threat right now is that there are many, 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 many people who have no idea just how complex this world is and is becoming by the second. It's insanely complex. And the, the, the problem with that is that uh, neurolinguistically, what happens is that people will shut down. You see, once they reach a certain level of awe, they're done. They just shut down and they will accept whatever suggestion is thrown at them. So if with all of this exponential complexity, they feel like, oh no, I can't deal with all this. And then now there's a commercial for deep dish pan pizza. You see? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I can't deal with this shit, but I can order a pizza and I watch some show that's going to make me feel like the, the world that I live in is simpler than it actually is. Future shock. So yep. that's that bubble of people retreating into that thing. You know? That's a very compelling trend line, I'd say, like as far as looking into the future and talking about collapsing possibilities into yeah. probabilities. I think it's Alvin and Marie Toffler nailed that one. In, yes. in future shock that you know you're going to see more and more of these people kind of retreating to and then there's also you know in line with that there was the recent research that they found that we actually have a, a cognitive bias towards using information that we're presented that contradicts what we think we know and then like automatically filing it away as bullshit and then yeah. saying like okay well that just makes my support for donald trump even stronger Knowing yes, that, you know, you're all out to get him. Like, we have this thing where we, you know, we do that. Consequently, you see this flaw in even, like, some of the best science fiction because, you know, even <laughs> science fiction authors spend so much time, like, intentionally burning their hand on the, the flame of this exponential future that they end up retreating. They're like, okay, but I still got to give it a tidy ending at the end of the... I've still yeah, got to wrap it all up somehow. Did you ever read uh, Accelerando by Charles Strauss? No. That's one that does what you're suggesting. That's one where the whole thing, nine chapters, three generations of one family, and every time you tune in with the, at the beginning of the next chapter, everything has changed. And everything is crazier. And it's this induced future shock for the reader. And it just opens and opens and opens and gets woolier and woolier. And you're just, you feel for these characters because you're like, I'm only reading about this. And it's, I've already crossed the line from like science fiction into magic. You know, like I just, I can't even deal with this shit. And like, you're living it. There's, there's a flip to that as well. The flip is that, you know, I, I've been, I got into tutting videos, you know, uh -huh. I can't do that shit. I do what I do, but I can't. I'm, I mean, I could do it if I concentrate, if I practice more, but I'm not good with that. <laughs> and, but the thing is, is that I've been watching Tutty videos and some of the new dance stuff, and it's like the younger people, the ones that are like teens right now, they're very polydimensional in their in their dance moves. They're not just creating, you know, a you know, let's say for instance, break dancing. Break dancing was very much kind of a kinesthetic superposition. 
How many different unpredictable yet related moves can I do to this rhythm at this moment that are in context with the communication that's going on, right? Right. But the, but the newer stuff, there is there is another dimension in uh, of well, there's a few more dimensions of time and space, you know. So the moves go out, back, up, down, to the side, twisted, and inside. You know, they do like weird tesseract shit with their hands and all of that. And what it says to me is that these kids were born into this shit. They were born into global network society and we think that their brains are fucked because oh they don't know what it is to live without a tablet and all this shit it's like we're looking you know people who are older than a certain age are looking at that shit the wrong way these kids are are polytasking you know they're able to many different points of, of information simultaneously some of them not all yeah, but yeah. There, there is a, a a strain of this generation that's able to hold multiple like the kid that the, the guy that uh, created ethereum what is he like 22 yeah it's nuts to- he was like 19 or when it came out yeah the world's first trillionaire how do you just sit there and make this thing at 19 and there's a whole classification of these spoon vendors uh, you know, all over the world, all over the world, and so there's so that is already happening. And I think the thing that, that keeps me toying, one of them is I remember in the '90s when software synthesizers became a thing. And at that time, I was in my 20s, and I'm talking to other musician friends of mine in their 20s, and I was like, they were like, "Why are you playing that? It's it sounds like shit," you know. <laughs> and I was like, "Look, man." This stuff is on the cover of a magazine called Future Music. All the software, plugins, sequencers, all of that shit. There's a whole new generation of producers who will never know what it is to step inside a studio. They will be doing everything in their bedroom and they will be doing it to a high level of sophistication. You won't even be able to understand what they're talking about if you don't get on this shit right now. And that's exactly how it turned out. So it's the same thing now. It's like there's so that these kids are going to be okay. Especially there's there is a special class of the ones that are really you know just buzzing with it, and they haven't even turned on yet. So if people right now they're still they're still being run by thirty and forty and fifty year olds and up. Wait till the 15 year old, the people who are 15 right now, start running shit. And they'll start running shit probably in the next two to three years. With, and because there won't be any friction between them being able to express what they want to express and to be compensated for it without having to deal with all of the regulatory stuff. Because none of that yeah, stuff. All the adult fuckery. They're just going to glide right past it. Yeah. You know, you're 20 years old. You don't give a shit about making sure that all of these old systems exist because all it means is that you're fucked for the rest of your very long life. So it's like all of that shit is caving in right now. And there's a, there's a, there is a, some of these kids that are coming into their own right now, they're very tuned in in a way that people who are older than them can't even begin to understand because they understand the network topology the program topology, the, um, you know, interact, they make their own porn. They don't even download porn. They make their own, you know, like everything is this communal peer to peer thing. 
So I want to talk about art and creativity in this space, right? Because that's the space where you live in. And, you know, I know you got time in Berlin. You got time in Detroit. When I was in Detroit in December 2010, I was on stage telling everybody, you guys are the next Berlin. You're looking at this moto industrial collapse, this implosion, and then like this sink in real estate. And then suddenly you got all these people squatting and forming artist collectives and stuff. And I haven't, honestly, I haven't been keeping the best track of it, uh, you know, in the, in the years since then, but it does seem like here's another example where, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the non-duality of creation and destruction are really clear and you start getting an inkling of the kind of awesome stuff that happens when a big tree that's been taken up all the light in the woods falls over and suddenly all these fungus and you know saplings and stuff are rushing up and it's this this moment of creative awesomeness that seems like it actually requires some collapse in order to facilitate that. So I almost feel like hanging out in Detroit in a makerspace like this, you're standing on the, the prow of the boat of civilization. And I'd be curious to know what you see from that spot. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's like, because we're in an age where, of course, there's a lot of, like I said, there's a polarity where there is a lot of bullshit. And then there's a lot of very not bullshit you know and so you know there are aspects of why detroit collapsed that have america's racial hang-ups and designs you know a lot of this race shit in america is designed to be what it is because if everybody realized that you know if everybody was able to express themselves uh properly we would be something else and it wouldn't be controlled by the people that is controlling you know and that something else would be i think grander but at the same time would have a whole other set of problems that would be related to its expression yeah right? so here in detroit there are aspects of um of the hows and the whys of why it collapsed. A big chunk of that was is is uh, is racials. A big chunk of that is the globalization of uh, of resources and, and labor and a bunch of a bunch of stuff that I'm learning while I'm here and that I researched since uh, and researched before I got here. But on the ground. There's a willingness by people to speak new languages, you know, to speak new words. You know, there's uh, gender identity and uh, language, uh, you know, there is ecological language of um, urban gardening and, and planning in such a way that is sustainable for food and things of that nature. So there's a lot of different language constructs that are emerging out of this soup. And uh, it is yielding very interesting results. You know, there are the normal markers of gentrification and all of those things, but there are also these exponential expressions that are modulating with those other movements. I mean, I think everything is modulating everything else. So gentrification is modulating, say, for instance, urban gardening and all of that, but at the same time, Urban gardening is modulating Afrofuturism, for instance, you know, which is a very strong construct here. So, I don't know, when I, when I lived in Berlin, we talked about Detroit as well. Artists know that in many places there, I mean, most places, there's a, there's a time, there's a, there's a, there's a, 
a golden age where you can do what you want and express the way that you want before the latecomers come and then everything gets expensive and then it's just a whole bunch of people fronting that, <laughs> yeah. you know that kind of shit and yeah, so yeah. in berlin around 2010 we were talking about detroit in the same light but being here i'm very much more interested now in being part of the conversations that are happening that can make it where i don't have to leave detroit in five years because it sucks yeah 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 it's like there's a chance that you know we could build some we could build structures here that ensure that that artistic thing can can keep itself alive and that's the thing too right because i mean that's a very similar conversation going on around stuff like burning man you know i was out at burning man for the first time this year in four years i haven't been going very long but i know people that were involved in it organizationally back in the 1990s you know and i've been in it long enough to see some of that revelatory burning bush kind of freshness start to congeal the molten rock starts to cool down you got an island and then birds start making nests on that island and then it's this question you know this year at burning man some of the most impressive art that i've ever seen because there's way more money throwing at art out there than there ever was but at the same time it's also like people hiring security guards for their camps and it's easy to see that kind of thing as a sort of you get both sides of that edge of it's gonna be both you know you get that utopian and dystopian thing where it's like one how do we keep the mystical experience you know the awe the wonder the raw creativity and discovery how do we keep that alive institutionally quote unquote or like with structures you know not necessarily institutions as we understand them but then also you know is there any way you know in terms of the planetary nature of this change now and the fear that that i have that so many of my friends have that you know that technology only seems to worsen the divide between the haves and the have-nots you know and as much as we're trying to it's, it's obvious that people are trying to pull back that agency you know get it spread around as much as possible i mean what are you hearing in that conversation about you know how do you keep detroit fresh and and cool and equitable five ten twenty years from now i hear the conversations that we have that's what i you know and i also hear my own virtual futures that I, you know, so I try to exist partially in this in this virtual space of the idea so that I'm not so influenced by any expression that just comes and jumps up in my face. So here in Detroit, you know, we have we have many, many, many conversations about these futures and implementation, and then we do it. That's one of the things that's really nice, is actually just doing it. I mean, I think you, you can't really... Innovation and institution, I won't say that they're oxymoronic, but I will say that they... The modulation is going to be different between them, you know? It's like, I don't look to institutions to... I don't believe that the, that the, uh, that the college education system is relevant anymore. Mm. I believe all of that information exists in a, in, a, in a global searchable network. If we were really thinking about designing viable futures, we would take all of that and 
put it on put it on this global network in ways that make it as absorbable as is synaptic patterningly useful. You see, so it's not just about like like for instance, like in the matrix, it's like downloading straight to your computer. Unless that download into the mind can create that synaptic network of meaning in the brain. That's not, you know, that that kind of thing would not be possible. You'd have to have a sub-process that would be this instant synaptic kind of mycelial network, you know? So why should kids have to get on a bus and go to a place where they sit down all day to have facts regurgitated to them so that they get out to have no fucking job? You know, to have nothing to do. They, the, the first thing that should happen is that everyone learns how to learn. Yeah, that's 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 the primary goal up to about six or seven or eight years old. How do you discern bullshit from something that you actually and bullshit? One person's bullshit is another person's uh, epiphany. So it's not saying that, oh, this is bullshit, you shouldn't do it. It's saying, how do you discern what bullshit means to you? That should be the very first thing that a child learns. And then from that point, our, our whole cities should be part uh, something that people live and work in, and then part of peer-to-peer apprenticeships. You know, kids should just be able to walk into any place and learn stuff that day. And everyone that's involved in that place can give them a little piece of history, a little piece of technique, a little piece of something, so that by the time they're 20, they know everything that is resonant to them. You see, these are the kinds. So we have these conversations here. And so we have our tiny ways of implementing. And then. Once that gets on the internet, then other people can take that. And, you know, the same way that I absorb, like I absorb constant amounts of ideas from other people. I didn't go to school for any of this stuff. And I won't go to school. I go to schools to to convey some of this stuff. But at this point, being here, there is that engine of uh, people wanting to think different. So... I know for me here, it's just the people are allowing me to think differently. So I walk around with 3D printed shit on and, and like it's some normal shit. Like, hey, what's up? Oh, not much, blah, 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 you know. And I have little conversations while I'm at the grocery store. And it's like it filters out in a very natural way. There are people who come by the workshop and we'll just have a conversation. They ain't got to do nothing. You know, and we, and it becomes this kind of resident thing over time. You see, that's how we're, we're playing with it. But it's like, I don't need an institution, in other words. That could be good for the long haul, but I think it's more like, you know, like the Jedi, you know, you have to do it. And that having this global store of information, our focus should be on people being able to better acquire the knowledge that's necessary for them to be whatever they want to be, whether we think that's good or bad, because the system itself will balance that shit out. It's like, uh, you know, if you think about, you know, scaling laws and how you might have, you know, like, let's say an institution operates as, as a super organism, right? Then the latency within that network is too great for it to survive above a certain like frequency of change. 
And it yeah. seems like a lot of what we're going through right now, the changes are propagating through the network faster than the the internal latency of these institutions. And I, I don't know that I, you know, a lot of my favorite science fiction is, is science fiction in which the people have had to find totally, like radically new constantly pro- evolving open-ended provisional back to that like you're talking about infinite games james p cars talks about society being a finite game as opposed to culture being an infinite game society is a form of culture that pretends that it's finite that's constantly referencing the past in order to maintain itself and that you know culture in the other sense is like open-ended and constantly changing and that society is actually doing this too but it's it's like preoccupied with bullshitting itself that you know it's maintaining this this thing so we're in this spot you know you're talking about like that sweet spot where you underneath the wave where you're surfing across it you know that extra that extra dimension you know this isn't about going up or down the wave at all you know i'm fully with you on learning as the number one thing because it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get the opportunity to stop learning you know, like if we want to keep playing the game, we're noobs for life, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's another way that I like looking at it now. In my research online, I go to the online institution. How's that? But in my research, I've, I've, I've been fascinated with um, neuroscience for the last three or four years. And in all of my research, one thing that I've come to out of all of that is that there is no limit to the amount of synaptic patterning that the cerebral cortex can undergo. There is no amount of synaptic connecting density that anyone has ever observed. There is no brain that is so full that it cannot process one more thing. Hmm. You see? So, guiding that process through whatever means allow for the useful integration of information. You know, so like I look at it from the point of view of cymatic, you know, turning uh, this verbalized uh, information print into cymatic structures. Oh, yeah. Uh, electrical stimulation, magnetic stimulation, amplicates, neurotropics. I like racetams as far as the neurotropics. I don't really like the gabapentin and the other ones that are more addictive. I'm not. I mean, I'm looking at like life, life uh, modeling systems rather than short-term protocols. You know, I wouldn't take gabapentin more than once. But I mean, I've done racetam for years. It's very easy when it runs out to just not do it for six months and then come back to it. And if there's no liver or neurotoxicity. But it increases the density of the corpus callosum, mm. and it increases. And there's a there's a level of clarity that is just intrinsic while using it. So yeah, it's like so. I love the racetams, but there are all these modalities that will create uh, neurogenesis and enhance neuroplasticity. So you know, encoding that information in a way that the brain. I, I look at the, the like, I mean, just I, like I said, the strength that I like is that I don't know enough to be intimidated by the information. So I'll read words that I don't understand until I create a model that makes sense to me. And then I will test that model. And if my model is flawed, then it, I will know it instantly and will instantly now have one particular 
possible possibility that I don't have to entertain anymore, or at least not entertain that way. And I can say, okay, that was wrong. So as a polarity to this, if this was wrong, then maybe this other thing opposite of it is right, whatever right means. Let me investigate this. And, oh, okay, well, that's wrong too, but in a completely different way. And you start to kind of triangulate this relationship. So it's, I, I see that like, if there's, you know, like my focus is getting away from all of these abstractions of ideologies and all of these other things and getting more into like a harmonic thing. If that harmony expressed binaurally, expressed uh, in terms of electrical stimulation, you know, alternating current, pulsed current, whichever, and being able to overlay, you know, say, um, you know, with a, a somatic encoding system that it can interact with things like Facebook and my car and uh, controlling my movies while I'm watching a movie. Can I turn my movie off and accept a call? And, you know, things like that so that I don't have to come out of that, that the, that the kind of recursive interaction with my neural machinery is just there, just evolving, 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 you see? So what does, say for instance with AI, how does this intelligence perceive if that is a term that can be used in regards to AI, how does it perceive the data that it is basing its thought processes on? What is like we might see its thoughts symbolically in terms of letters and numbers and lines of code and things like that. But I don't think that if you were made of I mean, we I mean, technically, you could say we are made of code and if you decide to to associate aspects of what we consider to be ourself. To right, but it's a totally different substrate and it's going to have a totally different phenomenal space in, in interior quality of experience. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. so, so is, it, is it sensing a linguistic representation of self or is there a rhythm and harmony of, of numbers and patterns of pulses because this all comes back down to electrical pulses of uh, intensely complex interaction, right? So I, I believe that even there, that there is a, um, that, that music is the thing that it would perceive, but we would call that music patterns or, um, or whatever to make it make sense to us. But it would come down to these intervals of on-off, at varying rates of on-off which would imply sound kind of reminds you know? me of uh, Olaf Stapledon's book star maker it was like, I don't know if you, you know about that book is I think published in 1937. And he talks about all of this insane. He's like the number one, most influential science fiction author of the 20th century, like blew Isaac Newton's mind when he was a kid, blew Arthur C. Clarke's mind when he was a kid, HP Lovecraft thought he was like the most important living author. This dude, He's talking about this character in Star Maker expands his consciousness by merging with ever more alien aliens through this sort of like astral mm -hmm. projection mind meld until mm. he's finally like the size of a planet, like an entire planetary civilization. And then they keep going and going and they finally get to this point where he's able to sort of he's like one with the entire universe that we have. But then he realizes that he's in this landscape of all of these other iterated universes mm -hmm. and that like the earliest universes were just like very simple, like low dimensional musical entity experiments. And that it all just grew out of that seed and became like 
a more and more complete musical expression but that's like yeah. it's all up in there yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's, you know it's, it's it's very interesting to explore it because looking at music from the point of view of neuroscience it makes it interesting it's like like i said i mean i'm i'm, I'm gonna be 50 in in like two and a half years which is a beautiful space to be in i'm, I'm really looking forward to it because 40 was fucking amazing but there is a level of boredom that comes in from just, you know, there was a point where just playing for people for their benefit was just tiresome after a while. And so why would I play for myself? You see? So, I, I mean, I play for myself. I play all the time, but not as an information modality, mm. as a, you know, playing and even using the word play, but interacting with musical structures as an information and storage concept it makes it a lot more interesting to think how will this complexify if this is the simple origin point that oh i have you know electrodes on my head this is this is now a simplicity now so how does that evolve over the next two and a half years before i turn 50 what does that look like and then at 50 what will be the thing that will be that I'll be basing simplicities on at that time you know I've, I've been playing with this neuromodulatory thing of music as a as a complexifying modality so each way of interacting with not just the sound not just the music but everything around it the programming the design the kinesthetics everything everything complexifying because the music is being uh, is there's a, there's one more thing being added to the parameter chain, one after the next, and each thing adds an exponential amount of complexity. So being able to perceive and modulate that exponential complexity to the degree that you create a new next thing, I believe creates ever more complex. It's like having a memory of something, and then a new memory of that thing being exponentially more complex than the last, and then a new memory of that new memory being exponentially more complex than that last, that that creates a, a, a complexification of synaptic networks that when one is not focusing on the music and focusing on, I don't know, making paper airplanes, that you would make a paper airplane that would be with each level of complexity that you would make a paper airplane that would be vastly that would be a singularity like the kind of paper airplane you give it to your friend and they're like what the fuck is that like, I don't know and then after a certain amount of time you make another paper airplane that's just like oh shit dude you're freaking me out yeah, and then there's another paper airplane that's like oh my god I can't talk to you anymore you know, that's that the funny thing. thing about about all of this when people talk about singularities and talk about this thing in the future it's like you know to bring it kind of full circle and you know you were talking about you know people talking about the future are actually you know talking about the past in some sense it's like you know i i'm fond of reminding people that we're on the other end of the singularity of language we're mm -hmm. on you know that like just even like speaking out of our mouth holes is like it's one of those things it's a before and after thing and we all just take it for granted because we all grew up with it and it's very easy for us to see that thing and then be afraid of this other horizon that we see, you know, it's, mm -hmm. and we're like, oh, no, it's that thing. It's like, OK, we're had we the foresight, had we the, the vision 
to stand as apes on like one end of it, looking at language coming up and being like, uh oh. You know, do you, would we would we have really been like, uh oh, or would we have been like, oh, okay, cool, I got this. Like we can. Have you ever done psychedelics? Oh yeah, totally. Okay, so you know, or maybe you remember or can construct a a useful memory of that of the anxiety of that first time, uh-huh. and you're like, oh shit, I took that. <laughs> or the fifth um, time, or the tenth time. Like so. And as it comes, I don't know, for me, there was a lessening of anxiety. It's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, it's like a familiarity of something that you've never felt before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? It's like, so I think it's the same thing now. It's like our language making capacity. It, when you, okay, for instance, like with our vocal cords. I mean, you realize that nothing else can do this shit, right? There's nothing else. I don't know. And I'm not really all into evolution either. If, okay, there were apes back when we were supposed to have split from apes, right? But if that's the case, and that was like, say, a half a million, million, let's say let's say five million years ago, right? Then shouldn't chimpanzees be talking by now if that's the case, right? Well, well no, not necessarily, because the complexity has a lot to do with, it's like your ability to model and communicate that complexity Mm-hmm. is a function of the complexity of your environment and your readiness to make that small jump to being able to respond to that environmental complexity with that. I think that's a factor. I think that's a factor. But the thing is, when you look at our vocal system, it is unbelievably complex. We're the synthesizer of nature. We can imitate other animals. It's so sophisticated that we can talk endlessly with this technology we call language using this this vocal system but at the same time it's capable of much higher volumes much greater subtlety and it's kind of contained especially in western culture it's kind of contained in this western middle road we don't have for instance a pitch component we don't have a rhythmic we have a kind of rhythmic component but we don't we don't we don't sing when we speak normally yeah Yes, yes, that kind of thing. We don't have the pops. and You know, there's 56 phenomes in the English language. And there's some languages that have like 100 or more phenomes, you know. So it is, you know, it is. So it is It is kind of a, a containment. It's a, you know, it kind of contains what we are capable of being just there without any other ideologies. No other ideologies necessary. Literally, our voice. I mean, I think that language properly expressed would produce the thing that you're talking about. If you're saying something, you wouldn't say it to describe it. You would say it so that it's there in your hand. You know, the, the whole more perfect logos that... that yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's a very... Yeah, you know, the Terrence McKenna, you know, yeah. DMT that, world. That, yes, exactly. So it's like, when you think about it in that... So now, how we speak now is one end of a polarity, and then manifesting something uh, with your voice is another end of the polarity. What is that spectral investigation in between there that is interesting that can look at this over here that we're do that we can do and we know we can do and we do effortlessly, and this other thing over here that just seems like some crazy bullshit? What is that <laughs> cross uh, modulation between those two things makes you know like I mean of course like right now I. I don't know what sound I would make to make something appear in my hand right now, but I could emulate 
that procedure by saying something and then maybe drawing it and then going through a few stages to have it come out of a 3D printer. Yeah, I was going to say like we we're we're not quite at the crossfade sweet spot, but we're uh, we're we're inching there with stuff like okay, Alexa, I would like the drone delivery of this thing. You know, like that natural language interface for artificial intelligence is getting us real close to that spot where you can just describe how you want this thing to print this thing. And you're, yeah, it's... it's. I don't know, but, but even then, we, I think if we talk to a computer in the language that we consider to be language right now, there is no subtle architectural way of doing that the words that we would use you know okay alexa 67 uh centimeter dodecahedral construct uh with a uh icosahedral door blah 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 (laughs) it's it's way too too many composite parts of those words necessary to there has to be a kind of a rhythm i feel i feel we need a more complex syntax right so that's where that's where uh, now we're at the part where it's like this is what i was truly excited about talking with you about before we even got on this call which is your work seems to be exploring this interface between the the maid and the born where the entire body and all gesture and all movement and all brain activity and biometric data and all of this stuff become components of an even greater syntax that transcends and includes verbal language the same way that syntax in in language itself transcended and included individual words and like gave us language and that like what we have right now language is like one word in this new thing where every possible motion conscious like autonomous or intentional is now, you know, and you get into like, I don't know if you, uh, Diana Reed Slattery wrote this book, Xenolinguistics, which is one of these, one, you know, she's talking about, uh, you know, visionary states, uh, the DMT experience, and these, these like hyper dimensional languages that occur to people in these spaces. She wrote this language called Glide, where it's one glyph and it's constantly transforming. It's like a four dimensional tube. Of, mm, of glyph- that's something of, I've been thinking about. Yeah. yeah, of glyphs, and so you know this this you know glide as a uh, a language is really close to like something that you could conceivably activate with tutting. You know that you're yeah. actually getting into these micro gestures yeah. and that kind of shit. So yeah, go for it very ah, yeah. easily. Yeah, it's very easily very easily as well. Um, you know, it's like that's funny that that you that you would describe that that construct because. As after I um, figured out how to make the system, uh, you know, and it has I have a sonic uh, relational system that associates um, the English alphabet with certain types of uh, with certain frequencies based on a pentatonic based on the vowels. And what I'm finding is that the, the design that I'm looking at is is something like that, where the words are kind of. To you is these harmonic structures of varying types. It's like they can be one after the other in a linear fashion, which isn't really linear in a sonic sense. It's it's more like explosions of sound in your ears, like. But the idea of linear is only really kind of a designed thing. You know, I design it to sound like it's coming to me or going across. You know, that's design. But at a certain point, that your brain, there is that sub component of alphabet and verbal and print 
that uh, would feed that process. But I think at a certain point, not, and I, I'm feeling it my, right now, but I'll know more in about four or five months, that feeding that process that eventually you stop thinking, you start thinking sonolinguistically rather than, so there is the still linguistics at its base. There is still a kind of uh, syntax there, but I think that's transitional. I think that once the sono um, linguistics start to take over and you start to be able to hear, like you hear and you hear the word because the word because pops up in your head and and can't pops up, you know, mm. it's like once you start being able to have those words pop up from hearing these these sequences of sound, that then is where the interesting start stuff starts coming in, because then you can detach from English, you know, and you can go into, say, like with Arabic, they have uh, little inflections that are drawn around the word around the letters which guide the mouth to form itself in a certain way right so it's very interesting to think about the types of programmatic inflections that could be put around these words to to create greater and greater meaning and that the way to quantify that meaning is that there is an integrated machine layer that allows you to print in 3d in 3d form that meaning control robots of any form with that meaning, interact with visualizations with that meaning, write something that would be print with that meaning. I also think it's necessary. I think natural language, I don't know, I feel like natural language is going to end up being some kind of slang at some point, that it's going to be insufficient for describing or interacting with this moment or the moments that come after this. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, the Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. But for now, May your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.